So we've been talking an awful lot about what? I mean, if you had to sum up where we've been in Hebrews so far with the five different men that we've had teaching on the subject, what would you sum up Hebrews in a sentence to this point? Jesus is more exalted than the angels and the clarification between his status and yeah. angel status. Absolutely. Jesus is far more exalted than the angels and there's been a number of ways that that's been said. It's been described exactly how it is that he's more exalted than the angels. I think at this point in the study, uh, first I'll read it, and at this point in the study, I think it may help for us to revisit some Old Testament passages that will give us some additional shape and understanding as to why, if, if, if there's such an emphasis that Jesus is so exalted over the angels, well, what is it about the angels? I mean, we've spoken very loosely. Well, what is it? What do we see in the Old Testament about angels that ought to give us a sense of why it's so important that we understand Jesus is more exalted and greater than the angels, right? It's, it's, it's a comparison. It's a contrast. There's a, there's a reason for the contrast. It's there for a reason. Uh, the point is being driven home repeatedly, hammered at us. And so we need to ask ourselves why. And so we're going to do that, 5 through 9, for he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You made him a little lower than the angels. I'm sorry, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So let's take a look. Genesis 1.26. Did I give that to anybody to read? Yes, brother. Ken. God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth over all the creatures that move along the ground. Thank you. Very good. Let us make man in our image. Interesting, isn't it? Who is the us in this passage? Uh, who said the Trinity? I'm sorry. There's really very little textual support for that, but that is the most common answer. But there's really very little comments. There's very little textual support for... And I would have said that to whoever said it, so you just happen to step up. Uh, but there's little textual support. There is some... There is some... There is some sense of theological uh, you know, underpinnings we can come at now with that. But certainly to the original audience, there would have been nothing of Trinitarian thought in this whatever. And so that leads us into the question of just you know, who is being mentioned here. Well, <clears throat> we can get a little additional help from some of the other passages we have. 3.22-24. Does anyone have that? I, I think I gave you all those Genesis passages. Okay, so read that please. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Yeah. He has... Lord, go ahead, I'm sorry, go ahead. The Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth that's right see so the tree of life was guided by the angel the reason for that by the way is if man ate from the tree of life as a sinful state he would be eternally damned okay so that's let's throw that out there for you 
consideration. Now, let us read also uh, Genesis 11, 6-7, which Ken, I believe you also have. The Lord said, is that one person speaking in the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Yeah, so we have this us showing up quite a bit in the Old Testament, don't we? And particularly in Genesis, we're going to see it in some other places. Isaiah six eight, Isaiah six eight one. That doesn't make a lot of sense. It should be Isaiah. The voice of the Lord saying, "Whom shall I send, and who will go for us?" Yes. Then said I, "Here am I, send me." Yes, yes, right. <clears throat> Whom shall I send? Who should go for us? And then lastly, First Kings twenty two nineteen to twenty two. Yes. Thank you. So, what, what do we see going on here? So, again, it would be nice and very compact and tidy if the Genesis one twenty six passage, let us make man in our image, were a reference to the Trinity. That would be a trump card. I mean, then you go all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. Okay, so we can squash uh, all those that are, uh, that are you know, the, um, the, the aberrations of Christianity, for example, like Jehovah's Witnesses, right? That would be a no-brainer, wouldn't it? Okay, and that would be an obvious one. But, but... Uh, there is, as I said, very little textual support for that to mean Trinity. What we see going on in these verses I just shared with you is a heavenly court. And this would have been a common understanding, particularly in that ancient Near East. There was a heavenly court to which God was constantly interacting with and addressing. Now, that doesn't mean he was getting permission from them to do things, but you've just seen, and I've only listed four or five examples, of God having interaction with angels, talking about things with the angels interacting with the angels, or in one place it's called the spirits, okay, which is an angel. Okay, spirits and angels, I, I think there's really not a lot of distinction between them. Alright, so we see in the Old Testament very early on that God is constantly sort of holding this heavenly court where he's talking about things with this sort of surrounded by angels. And we know God dispatches angels. We know God does things with angels. They're constantly in his presence. We see in the Revelation not only worshipping, but back in the Old Testament... As Revelation began, God is revealing to us that in the court of heaven, so to speak, in the gathering of the heavens, there's things going on. God's discussing and dialoguing with angels. Why? I don't know. We don't have to really know why. Um, they're created beings. We know that. This doesn't mean, by the way, that the angels were involved in creation. It doesn't mean that the man is created in the image of angels. The image of man is a distinction between man and beasts, not man and angels. So maybe, maybe angels share in the divine image some way or other. Maybe, maybe they don't. I don't know. But to say that we're made in the image of God is to distinguish us from the animals, not from angels. So uh, the, the angels, therefore, as you've seen, I mean, they've been involved in so many things and what God has done in the history of his people. So um, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. Again, as we continue to look at... You know, why do we need to understand? Why is the book of Hebrews constantly hammering home in the very beginnings of the book 
this distinction to be made of Jesus and the angels. How did the, how would these people who are thinking of going back to the Mosaic Code, placing themselves once again under the law, okay, how, how did they get this sense of you know, what is informing their sense of the significance of angels that sort of mean, that sort of needs to be undone? Okay, what's going on with that? Where did this where did this understanding come from? Deuteronomy thirty two eight. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when He divided all mankind, He set up boundaries for the people according to the number of the sons of Israel. Yeah. Now that's variously translated. Some have, and I think it's because of the uh, text from which it is translated. I think the Masoretic text, if I remember, it, uh, an interpretation of that would be the sons of Israel. But, but more often it's interpreted either as the sons of God or as angels. Okay? So, and the reading implies, as one commentator said, the reading implies that the administration of the nations had been parceled out among a number of angelic powers. Okay? Well, do we have anything else in Scripture that would support that? Who's got the Daniel passages? Tony, would you read those first, good and loud, please? Starting with Daniel 10, 10 through 14, then 20 through 21, and then 21 1. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, who are you highly esteemed? Oh, you, you who are highly esteemed. Consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you and stand up. For I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God. Your words were heard and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was determined there sorry, I was determined there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to you, to your people in the future, for the vision concern a time yet to come. Okay, and then verses 20 to 21. Oh, um, Same chapter. Oh, chapter 10, I, I verses 20 to 21. So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and then I will go. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one, this is in brackets, no one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. Very good. And then chapter 21, verse 1. I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 1. the great prince who protects your people will arise there will be the time of distress such as, as, such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then but at that time your people anyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered ok thank you so what we have here going on this is great vision that Daniel had this prayer Daniel played <coughs> excuse me Daniel prayed this amazing prayer it was a prayer of confession. It was a prayer of appeal to God. 
And God responses by dispatching an angel or a prince. So what we have going on here is a is control of certain areas by angelic beings. This is why we have the prince of uh, Persia, the prince of um, going back in verse. I'm sorry, go back to uh, chapter ten, verses uh, ten through fourteen. The, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. So this is an angel. So he's not encountering a, a, like a physical king. He's encountering an angel. There's angelic warfare going on. Why? Because certain angels have been apportioned certain parcels, so to speak, of the kingdom of God for, for whatever purposes God has for them. For delivering God's words, as God often did through angels. For he delivered, certainly delivered the law through angels, the scripture tells us. All kinds of things... God did through angels, and angels were assigned certain geographic areas. Okay, it was sort of the big, the big, uh, the big theological UN, so to speak, of of the time. And so, and then Michael had to be dispatched because they needed someone that could go down there and and and, and take on sort of the king of Persia, the prince of Persia. So there was this real battle going on, and a hierarchy, so to speak, of angelic powers that were being dispatched over protection for God's people. I was sent, he said, to respond to your prayer, but I was held up. This is amazing to us, isn't it? You think God could just send his angel, just, you know, dispatch him, get to Daniel's prayer? You know, and, and I, I think that, um, so my question that I have for myself is, gee, is it like that today? Are, are the kingdoms of the earth apportioned out under certain angelic control? I would suggest they were. I think the New Testament gives us support for that, but I think also the New Testament gives us reason to believe we're, we're in the next stage also. And, and we'll take a look at some New Testament passages uh, in a moment. But the angels are pretty impressive at this point, what we've seen, right? The angels have considerable power. They're even able to do battle in such a way as to fight against God when he wants to dispatch an answer to Daniel. And there's a reason why, again, in the counsels of God's own mind, or again, even in... You know, the, perhaps, I don't know, there's, there's very little we can talk about Trinitarian in the Old Testament. Very little. I mean, we do see the, the early sort of basis for it. We, we, we clearly see monotheism, which is new enough. Which is new enough. I mean, the Jewish religion was the first monotheistic religion. Just thinking of this even this week. Abraham, when God called him, he was polytheistic. He must have thought God was just one of the great gods. Abraham wasn't monotheistic until God got a hold of him for a while. I don't know when he became sort of monotheistic, but it wasn't right away. So this was a polytheistic culture that they came out of, and so I, I don't know that um, I, I don't know that you know even as we think about these things, how you know it's hard for us to think Trinitarian in an Old Testament sense because remember with Scripture we always have to ask first and foremost. What would the original audience have heard? To whom was this written? Because again, it wasn't written to us, it was written for us. Okay? The Pentateuch was not written to Christine Leo. It was written for her, but it was not written to her. I'm struggling with uh, Genesis account. I'm mm. my, the whole time you're reading and Tony's reading, I just keep going back to let us make man in our image mm-hmm. with a capital O. Mm-hmm. How are you suggesting that? I've heard it taught, and you know, the guy I got it from. I don't know mm-hmm. uh, all of his understanding, and I don't actually even know how to ask this. Uh-huh. But I'm like, wait, no, this is this is God setting apart humankind with an yep. everlasting soul to set us apart from animals, to set us apart from everything else He's created, and that 
I've even heard it said that when we look at cherubim, how they have like the face of an ox and the mm-hmm. wings of an eagle, that animals have been created like the angels, and man has been created like God. So when it's talking about let us make man in our image, that was just a theory, but... You know, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I would disagree with him because I don't think animals were made in angelic image at all. Uh, because, again, we see here that mankind was originally created lower than the angels. That's a fact. For a little while, as the text says here, and as Psalm 8 says, man was for a little while created lower than the angels. So man was created initially lower than the angels. That, that's what Scripture says. Okay, so the... Um, and, and again, the, the hours that are used that I shared with you, clearly God's not talking within a Trinitarian self. That would have made no sense to the people that heard it. What, why? So, but it's so this, all new. It's all, Abraham's from this polytheistic idea. Yep. If he's coming and learning this monotheism, that's all new to him anyway. So yes, it is. It's it, not as though he it is, but God's revealing God. that, though. God is revealing in particular about his monotheism. So who he is, is not particularly revealing... Okay, so the reason why I went to those other verses... That's right. It's, in, it's just God addressing sort of the heavenly court. This is really one of three type of sort of... The other ones don't really... There's nothing to support textually Trinitarianism. As much as me might like that, that's reading back into the Old Testament something that's not there. Uh, the other one is that it was sort of following some of the mythological understandings of the culture at the time, which cannot be accounted for. Scripture never... Uh, scripture never, God never gives credit to myth for any particular thing. But what we clearly see, we have to start with what, what is very clear. What is very clear is God is talking with non-God beings when he's saying our. When he says things like, who are we going to send? And one of the angels says, I go. That's not one of the members of the Trinity that's going. Okay? When God comes down and visits Abraham and there's two angels with him, okay, and God is speaking with Abram, and then God sort of goes away and the two angels are dispatched to Sodom. Okay, and they sort of appear. So my point is, and I think the only thing that we can really get solidly is, whatever is going on, it's not a discussion between Father, Son, and Spirit. Again, it's very hard for us to read back. It's hard for us to sort of unknow something. We have to ask ourselves what the original audience knew. And there would have been nothing further from their thought, first of all, than monotheism initially, and certainly not Trinitarianism, three persons with one being. The text answers your specific question, though. He is clearly talking with angels. All of the hours, all the other evidence we have, so even if that Genesis 126 one is tough, we have to say, okay, how else is our used when God is talking to others? And then how is it also used in other places in the Old Testament? So that's how we build our understanding. I'm having a hard time with that. Yeah. Well, you, well, okay, that's cool. You can have a hard time with that. Yeah. I, it doesn't... I'm like, oh, I yeah. don't know enough. <laughs> yeah. Well... This is why you compare Scripture with Scripture and why Scripture is the greatest interpreter of itself. Many of us, I think, just have always assumed that when God says, let us make man in our image, he's speaking within. Now, when he said, let us, it's obviously to us, it would have been, so whatever God was sort of doing in, in sort of the heavenly court, is, is we want to call it that, and that's a proper theological study and a proper theological term. I didn't invent that. Certainly, it could be from our understanding the Trinitarian God and there is obviously the Trinitarian God because God always is what God is it certainly is the Trinitarian God in dialogue with and holding sort of heavenly court with the with the angelic host whom again they dispatched to do everything God dispatched the angels to do everything they announced the birth I mean we could go through the entirety of the, of the scripture and see yes they further down verse 
Yep. Yep. So even if, but so, but even God saying, "Let us create man in our image," is not a command to the angels to create no, beings. And so sometimes we have to be content with what does it not say, and what does the rest of the Old Testament teach for sure. Todd and then Tony. You, uh, you're definitely. <clears throat> I, I'm sure you're right where you don't want to be right now. In terms of <laughs> I couldn't it. be happier than I am right now. <laughs> I just want to say a couple things. Um, uh, to muddy the waters even more, actually. Um, regularly, the prophets prophesied what they did not know and could not have understand. That's a fact. But when they do so, they're doing so within the terms of prophecy. We always have to keep in terms the understanding of what particular genre of language is being used, what is going on, what is known at the point. So, so the prophets, they knew full well that they were prophesying things that they could because they looked into these things but they're wanting to understand. Yeah. That but says nothing in a sense about what is being said by God at this point in the Pentateuch. The prophets still, their commission was still to speak to a people mm-hmm. who many times did not know. Alright, so that's contextual. That's historical. So, but the point is is that, secondly, is, is that there are plenty of theologians that would take that Genesis one twenty six account, yeah, and, and maybe you could use the word impose a trinitarian, mm-hmm. but more so a, what they call a binitarian mm-hmm. view, which is through understanding progressive revelation, we have the beginnings of the teachings of the trinitarian model of a monotheistic God, starting with a binitarian two persons of the Trinity in the Old Testament. Yeah, I think that would certainly muddy the waters worse and well, make it I'm harder to understand. Yeah. yeah, and I would disagree with them, that's all. I mean, there are, there are people that will hold to this understanding. I think it makes little sense given what we see in the rest of Genesis and the way ours is used and when God is addressing the angels and what we would like to sort... We would like to really impose that understanding. And I would just... And I don't want to get bogged down here. I appreciate people's disagreements with it and I think that's fine. It's not inimical to our understanding other than to say that there's a certain view of the angels. So even if we don't fully understand, the angels are certainly in court with God all the time. It's just a term that, for lack of a better understanding, but it's a gathering. There is a heavenly court. There was that in the understanding of the ancient Mesopotamian people too, Mesopotamians and Near East. There was always an understanding of their mind that the gods held sort of heavenly court. So always God is using the culture the people are in to reveal over and above what the culture understands. But, but certainly, at no point in this, at this point in the Genesis narrative, and, or I would say anywhere, I would, so we see little things like the Spirit of God was hovering above the waters, and we understand that more fully now because we understand what Spirit means. But the, what, and even to go to your point, what the prophets did understand was no less meaningful because they didn't understand fully what was coming. They were fully loaded with everything that they were supposed to understand. Now, we know God is God, and everything God does, God does entirely as God. So that doesn't mean that there wasn't God, Father, Son, Spirit involved in creation, because we know that Jesus Christ created. We know that from the rest of the Scripture. We know that Christ created all things. We know that from Colossians. We know that from Hebrews. We know that from a number of places. We also know that the Spirit was involved in the creation of man. So, all of those things are true, and I wouldn't debate any of those things. What I'm suggesting is, and what I think is the best reading of the text at this point, my understanding, which is incomplete, is that 
and although I can assert it with force, I can still at the same time maintain that I could be wrong. But as the great philosopher J.P. Moreland once said, just because it's possible that I could be wrong doesn't mean it's reasonable for me to believe that I am. <laughs> so, so until I can be, until I convince otherwise, here I stand. I, I, I cannot do otherwise. Yeah. It would make more sense why the, um, the Hebrews, the Jewish nation, thought that the angels was a form of deity. Well, this is my point. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. The, the <coughs> so that's very clarifying as well. Remember, the context in which I delivered this, <coughs> obviously controversial, knowing it would be a controversial topic, because controversy, Scripture says there must needs be... What did Corinthians say? There must needs be what? Differences among you, so that those who are right among you may be approved, right? So it's necessary, in a sense, to do that. And I like to live in that necessary place. It's true. So, but Randy's point is, is, is the one that I tried to make from the outset of all of this. We need to understand why did the Hebrews think so highly of angels? And the text tells us why. I think also a possibility may be, and we've already... Um came upon it is that they're used to polytheism right and you know Abraham came from it Mm -hmm. and all the pagan nations around them believe in polytheism Mm -hmm. yep and so to separate themselves from from polytheism Mm -hmm. to monotheism is a big deal right and so there there must be a heavenly host up there and they all have different powers and there clearly is love it whether, whether we accept that hour to be Trinita- a Trinitarian mm-hmm. statement or not, mm-hmm. we certainly see Trinitarianism latent in the Old Testament. And I think we can cite various scriptures that imply that there's a plurality in unity sure. and not a, um, and not a um, contradiction of, of a, a monotheistic God at the same time. Right. In, we could debate whether the word Elohim right. may imply plurality. Mm-hmm. Some would, some may not think so, but mm-hmm. there are other indications in the Old Testament. So just to settle the matter that yes. perhaps I'm saying that Trinity is not in existence. No, I would never say that. Not, when, when the Lord is saying, let us make man, and the heavenly host that he was speaking to mm-hmm. was obviously inclusive of the Trinitarian God. So <laughs> tr- Trinity is saying, let us make man in our image. Well, of course. And, and, I, and, and but that that should be clear. Um, and no one would. I mean, I. I don't think that's even a question whether or not I teach anti-trinitarianism. <laughs> that's an Arian. No. <laughs> but what does the scripture say? And it doesn't matter whether we like it or not. If we don't like it, we got to come to grips with it. We got to wrestle with it. So if if we get a challenge to our understanding, and believe me, I've had considerable challenges to my understanding, and and. Kim and I were discussing this this morning uh, to some extent. We, what was it we said? We, we act on what we think we know or something like that? We, we tend to act on what we think we know. And we become very embedded in it. And sometimes there are very good reasons to stay there. But I would just leave it with this. I encourage you to research it on your own some and look into it. Look, look into, uh, plumb the depths if you're going to it. It's, it's, if it's a passage you've used to support Trinitarianism in the past, all I'm going to say to you is, is a well-schooled one is Pentecostal or a well-schooled or a scholar in uh, Jehovah's Witnesses will defeat you on that point. So don't make that, that your point of Trinitarianism. That's a lousy place to establish Trinitarianism is that passage. We can give you a million better ones. 
ones that they can't begin to sort of object to and ones that are impossible to refute and overcome. Okay. Luke 4, 5 to 6. We're going to take a look at angels in the current age. Still. New Testament current age. Who's got that? Oh, I do. In the devil, taking him up into a, a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Mm-hmm. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee in the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. Mm-hmm. Imagine that. So the devil saying, All authority has been given to me, I can give it to whomever I want. Okay? The devil is an angel. Right? The devil is an angel. Okay, Second uh, Corinthians four three to four. Caleb. So even if our gospel is veiled, Paul is saying it is veiled by the the God of this age, the God of this world who has the power to veil, for whatever reason, however it's going to work out, and we can't cash that out, to veil the gospel. Okay? So this is how powerful angelic beings are. Okay, if there's any question left in anyone's minds about what goes on still with the angelic beings, Ephesians 6, 11 to 12, did I assign that? Yes, Brother John. Yeah. Look at what they call their rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So you talk about progressive revelation in a sense, right? And what should we be thinking about angels? And how do these Hebrews arrive at this understanding of angels that makes it such that they want to go back in a sense? Because the power of angels is one of the reasons they want to go back. It's not just that they want to go back to the temple sacrifices. They do. It's not just that they want to go back to you know, the cult of, of uh, Judaism. They want, to, they want to, again, subject themselves to angelic authorities. The Colossians had a similar issue in some ways, by the way. Why do you keep submitting yourselves to the elemental principles of the world? Okay, Colossians has a lot of uh, spiritual warfare going on as well. So we have angels being called all these things. And then we take a look in Jude as I'm wrapping up my case for the, for the massiveness of angels, in which, you know, it's important for us to have, if we talk about understanding angels, we always tend to want to think in terms of, is there an angel helping me get, get out of an accident? Is there an angel that threw that $20 bill on the ground when I needed it most, right? <laughs> uh, was it, so it was an angel that got Peter out of prison, right? Smacked him upside the head and said, get out, you know, and it was... And it's, it's cool, we can think of angels that way, but we've got to think of the sort of theology of, which includes the history of, angels. A proper understanding of angels is not just, you know, how do they sort of... What's their history? What's going on with angels? Jude 6, we take a look at this. This is a really bizarre passage in Jude. Jude 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. They did not keep their own domain. They had a domain. Angels had a domain. They did not keep their proper abode... He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now it gets really weird. 
And then remember, Jude is steeped in Old Testament thought, right? Jude is steeped in Old Testament thought. He says here in Jude 8 and 9, he says, Yet in the same way these men, he's putting down all these guys that are coming in causing trouble, right, for the Christian people. And he's contending earnestly for the faith. He says, Yet in the same way these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. He's trashing them because they revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he was disputing with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, right, so Michael the archangel is arguing with the devil about the body of Moses. Who gets the body? Who gets the body? He says, he says here, Moses, I'm sorry, Michael the archangel, when contending, said, the Lord rebuke you. He did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael the archangel would not rail against Satan. The power. See, so there's this hierarchical understanding. Michael the archangel himself, the great prince, said, the Lord rebuke you. That's what that scene must have been like. This is Scripture. This happened. So, so Michael the archangel and Satan were arguing over the body of Moses. Man, can we pull back the curtain? Could somebody, could an artist... Could somebody use special effects and make a film about that? Could somebody with imagination that's got like the imagination of Stephen King and the soul of C.S. Lewis make something about that? Oh, I'd pay big money for that. J.B. Phillips says here in his trans paraphrase, J.B. Phillips did a paraphrase of the scriptures back in the 50s. Okay? Very loose paraphrase in many places, but helpful here when he's talking about verse 5 going back to Hebrews now for though in past ages God did grant authority to angels yet he did not put the future world of men under their control and this is the world we're talking about now which is helpful because the way that many of our more formally equivalent translations like the New King James and the King James and the New American Standard and the English Standard and I don't know about the NIV because that's not really word for word but like in the NASB says, he did not subject angels, he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. And it's difficult to tell them that grammatically is the subject of uh, uh, is the subject of what we are talking about, the world to come or angels. Okay, but the subject matter in particular is the world to come at this point. He's been talking about the world to come. Okay, it's a world where Jesus is far above the angels, and much more excellent than them, according to one four. It's where Jesus' throne is forever and ever. It's where, quote, you remain, it says of Jesus. The heaven and earth will pass away. Angels, nothing to rule over. Because it's going to be gone. This heaven and this earth, this age, which angels rule over, is going to be gone. They're, they're, so they're not going to have that role and that function. And so he says here, you made man for a little while. For a little while. And what's the point of that? The Hebrews ought to say that this is from the psalm. Hey, Hebrew audience, for a little while, did you miss that? It doesn't say, for he made man lower than the angels, period. He made man, for a little while, lower than the angels. And that means you, Wally. <laughs> am I an angel or am I a man? That's to be determined. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my question to you, not even a question, but a statement, is that the Satan at one time was an angel mm-hmm. and was cast from heaven mm-hmm. with 
perhaps a third or so of the angels yeah. the, that followed him, uh, but he was still an angel. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you. I think that the um, Archangel Michael mm -hmm. is also an angel mm -hmm. on the same, not, not in the same quality, mm -hmm. but on the same tier mm -hmm. uh, of angelic beings. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, therefore, he doesn't he, you know, he doesn't have that authority. Right. He is to, he uh, transfers that authority, or or acknowledges better word acknowledges the authority of God to rebuke. Right. Just as Jesus uh, uh, so indicated to himself that the Father is greater than I. Yes. And there's a, like a like a chain there. Yep. So again. What's the purpose of this? Is of driving this home is that we understand why it is that this misunderstanding of angels has got to be overcome if the Hebrews are going to move on. The, the book of Hebrews eventually is going to get into the high priesthood of Jesus. It's going to get into the, uh, the, the obsoleteness of the old covenant. Okay, it's going to get into why the old covenant is now obsolete. Okay, it's going to get into all that. It's going to talk about no need for sacrifices every day, which could not cleanse of guilt. Could talk about all those things. It's going to talk about new covenant, new priesthood. It's going to cover all that. But that's not the first thing it covers. The first thing it covers, the first thing Hebrews attacks when he's going after the whole, the whole, the whole group of Hebrews that in some way are in danger of drifting away, and they are drifting away. It starts with the superior the superiority of Jesus over the angels. Amen. That is profound, and this is why I chose to approach this subject matter today the way that I did is looking back and saying, what, what's the problem here? What's got to be undone? Okay, where did I go astray? Right? Where did, where did, where did we get off on our thinking the wrong way? And we, we start there. So these, these people had a wrong understanding of angels. And as often happens in, this, in the New Testament, the reference goes back to the Psalms, as it richly does in the book of Hebrews, to properly correct their theology, which has gone amiss on a number of points, and in a couple of weeks, or when he gets back in the fall, I know that you've resolved, reserved Psalm 8. That's one of the Psalms you're going to cover, right? We, we already did. I'm sorry? We did Psalm 8. Oh, you did Psalm 8. Oh, I wasn't there for that one. Oh. So that's good. If you were there, you've got Psalm 8, and you've got a good instruction on that, and you've got the context, which I'll mention just a little bit of. I wasn't going to steal your thunder, nor will I steal no it in retrospect. Steal. <laughs> <laughs> um, Psalm 8, uh, this is where this little portion of the psalm comes from. It says, it is testified somewhere, but one has testified somewhere saying, right? Well, was it this Davidic? Did David do this particular psalm? Okay, so David did this psalm, so why not Paul say, uh, not Paul, but the, the writer to the Hebrews say, as David said in the psalms, as other places do, right? In the book of Acts we see that, right? David said, and it doesn't say that. It says, as it is testified somewhere. And I don't think that means that they were confused as to the origin of this particular psalm. And that original, uh, I, I think it's kind of like what we say, oh, you know what they say, when it rains it pours. It's like so commonly understood or, or known that, you know, we don't have to talk about, the, I don't know who's the first person that said it anyway. But certainly in this case, they would know from the psalm. It was just very common. So in that original psalm, there's praise being poured out by the psalmist. He's amazed at the grandeur of creation. And he then ponders with such greatness what is man that you have done what you have done for him, giving him glory and honor, right? And, 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 and we, I think we're often likewise amazed, or we can be. You can be. You get yourself in that place where you're amazed by God and do that. 
get yourself where you're still amazed by Him. I hope you haven't gotten used to God yet. Hope you haven't gotten used to Jesus yet. Right? My wife has gotten used to me, poor thing. Right? But there's so much more of me to offer. There's so much... Just give me a chance. But there's so much... There's so much to know about Jesus, isn't there? Right? There's so much to love about Christ. There's so much more. There's so much more depth to plumb. God must not get tired of Jesus of hearing the same things over and over again, right? So, the man and the son of man, and I don't know, you and I might differ on this. Let's just save that. Man and son of man are parallel statements in this. I don't believe there's any indication of uh, that early on a Jewish messianic expectation that would have lent itself to the title of son of man. That understanding doesn't come until later. So, son of man here and man... And you and I might part company again on this. I don't believe the Son of Man and the original audience is a reference at all to Jesus. Okay? Except for, and this is what's important for us to remember, and to keep in mind, that Jesus fulfills everything humanity was created for. So everything that man is supposed to, was originally created for, had the potential to do, Jesus did. So anytime we even, so even in this particular psalm where we know that it may not be in its original delivery messianic title for Jesus. We know that Jesus fulfilled in his being humanity and deity. But he fulfilled humankind. He did what it means to be human. He is the quintessential human, as I preached on a week or two ago. Okay? He is the ultimate. He's what a human being was supposed to be. Okay? I'll mention that again. So, um, but of course, we know more now. Now we can think of the Son of Man the way we know it. And we can say, yeah, that's cool, right? And so man had full dominion over God's creation, right? And, and I wonder, if, I don't wonder, I'm pretty convinced, Adam was supposed to defeat death. In other words, he wasn't supposed to become a victim of death, okay? Again, not to be controversial, I believe that, that the death that was introduced into, um, uh, death came by sin, uh, has to do with human death. So I think somehow... There was some death that Adam saw, whether it was plant death or animals eating animals. I don't know. We could, I don't want to argue that other than to say that in the original statement of the day you eat this, you will surely die. Die meant something. <laughs> right? That wasn't a comment made out of nowhere. Death meant something to Adam. Death was something you wanted to avoid. So, but he should have. He said, God said, don't eat from it or you'll die. The day you eat from that, you will die. So Adam was supposed to not eat and not die. He was supposed to avoid the circumstances that lead to death. So in a certain sense, he was supposed to, he was supposed to defeat death. Right? Um, God gave Adam certainly a chance to avoid that. Uh, verse 8b, the second part of it. Uh, For in subject, subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subject to him. Boy, so man certainly does not have anything subject to him. Now we're going to see that Jesus... But I'll wait on that. Because again, remember, Jesus is the human. <laughs> He's the one that accomplishes God's plan for humanity. Okay? Man certainly does not have anything subject to Man is not what man will be. In fact, the day will come when we judge the angels. Right? The day will come, Paul says, they're arguing about courts. He says, don't you know you're going to judge angels? So that gives us a little clue, right? That gives us a clue that there's a, there's a change in the economy, so to, so to speak, coming in the age to come. Right? Angels are no longer going to be the supreme beings, the great beings. So we're going to be over the angels in that respect, and we're going to be like the angels in some ways, Jesus said. doesn't mean we're going to become angels. You know, it could be a little cherub, baby-faced, happy, flowing around. Okay? So there's a reversal of sorts going on. Verse 8, still speaking about man in general. 
And keep in mind that though Jesus is a man, he is what God intended man to be. Jesus, again, the fulfillment of humankind. He's the second Adam. Why does Scripture call him the second Adam? He's the second Adam. He's the one that gets it right. Right? Adam failed it. Jesus nailed it. This is interesting. This is from... Uh, here's, here's what the world could look like if things were subject the way they're supposed to be. This is from his book, uh, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, A Breviary of Sin, uh, Cornelius Plantinga. If you think he's deep, you got to read Alvin Plantinga. Um... He says here, the way things ought to be would also include an individual's persons, in an individual's persons a whole range of intelligent responses to other creatures and even to their relationships with other creatures. A spread of appropriate thoughts, desires, emotions, words, deeds, and dispositions. Nations and races in this brave new world would treasure differences in other nations and races as attractive, important, complementary. Government officials would still take office, right? Because somebody has to decide which streets are cleaned on Tuesday and which on Wednesday. But to nobody's surprise, they would tell the truth and freely praise the virtues of other public officials. Intercontinental ballistic missile silos would be converted into training tanks for scuba divers. (laughs) All around the world, people would stimulate and encourage one another's virtues. Newspapers would be filled with well-written accounts of acts of great moral beauty and at the end of the day, people on their porches would read these and savor them and call each other to talk about them. Our emotions are not subject to us. It's a wonder we can do very little about the bee that stings us when we step on this precious flower out in our two acres of property. You, you, if you even own a half an acre or a quarter of an acre, this obnoxious little beast can inflict great pain on you on that little itty bitty tiny piece of the whole earth. So we, we don't even have dominion over that, never mind dominion, particularly as unbelievers, over our own evil predilections, our dispositions to evil, our, our tendency to be self-centered, etc., etc. Romans 8, 20-22 talks about the creation was subjected to futility. In other words, the whole scheme and dominion and subjection and control was thrown into chaos, and God did do that as a result of sin. As a result of sin, God here... So, yes, it was a result of Adam's sin, but God threw the universe into chaos. God threw it... He's the one that did that. Adam didn't have enough power by his disobedience to tip things upside down. The Scripture says that it was subjected by Him. The the creation was not subject willingly, but by Him who created it, uh, who subjected it to futility. God did that. God said, okay, this is what happens without me. Right? Now, I don't want to verse, I don't want to confuse, we're getting a lot today, aren't we? I don't want to confuse control versus subjection. Just because, just because things aren't subject doesn't mean that God's not in control, right? Right now, and as always, God has been in full control. Man has not been, never was. Nothing right now is subject to man as it should be either. There are many things that God is in control of, things that are at the same time not subject to God. They, they don't subject themselves to God's headship, His authority. Humankind does not gladly and willingly consider themselves God's subjects, right? Especially unbelievers. God helped believers, but they don't consider themselves God's subjects. It's like my dog, Bella. I've got control of Bella with the training collar. Alright? Now... 
before you start calling the you know environment, I mean, the, the society for the prevention of cruelty to animals, training callers have three settings. They get a little beep, then they have a vibration, and then they have a zap, which on mine goes from a scale of one to a hundred. Now I only have the the, the the shock set to ten, so and I tested it on myself first. So the but the point of the being is I can get her under my control. I can call and if she doesn't come, I send the vibration and she comes running immediately. But she's not subject to me. Right? She doesn't subject herself to me at all. She still thinks she's the one. But I hold the remote to the caller, okay? Only in Jesus do control and subjection come together, right? Now, in the text this morning, and I used to, I used to when, I, when I was pastoring at church for a while, I used to... Uh, Introduce the sermon by saying, "In the text this morning," and the respondents would say, "We see Jesus." Jesus. Yeah, that's what we used to do. I said, "In the text this morning," and everyone respond, "We see Jesus," because that's what we see here. Because that's what it says in verse nine. We don't see subjection. We see things a mess, but but we do see Him who, and it uses the exact same language as it uses for all of mankind, was made a little lower than the angels and was crowned with glory and honor. But in this case, it was the crowning of the glory and honor that comes with the surrender and the suffering of death, the Scripture says. Okay? So, Jesus, like all of mankind, had to be made like all of mankind. We're going to see that in verse 10. Whoever picks up that next week, brother, God, right? Because He suffered death, even death on the cross, who was exalted, Philippians 2, right? Therefore God hath highly exalted Him. Why? Because He submitted to death, even death on the cross, Therefore God hath highly exalted him and given him the name above every other name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess for the things on earth and under the earth and heaven that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the great name, right? So he tasted death for everyone. What does that mean? Well, death has to be undone because man is in a covenant with death until he's redeemed. We're in, until we're redeemed, yes. Oh, no, I'm sorry. No. We're in a covenant with death. Man in his natural state is in a covenant with death. He's in a covenant with Satan. Okay? He's in a covenant with darkness. He has to be redeemed from that, right? And death has to be undone. And only through death can the covenant of death be broken. This is deep waters here. This is Romans 7, 1 to 3, when Paul says, Do we not know that a woman is subject to her husband until he dies, and then he's free to, to marry another? Well, the, the same is true of us. The covenant with death had to be broken so that we could become espoused to our new. Uh, groom, the Lord Jesus, right? It's, it's the whole, the whole church thing, and, and I know I'm getting a lot of information. And I hope it hurts a little bit. <laughs> we had to die to our relationship with Satan. Only death could free us, so that we'd be free to marry Christ. Yes. Well, your point, I, I, I love that uh, uh, that we see Jesus. I mean, you can't read Psalm eight yeah. without saying we see Jesus. Yep, absolutely. You can't, and, and this is just kind of uh, backing up what you're saying when. Yes, the text itself is being specifically referred to Psalm 8 and man as referred to as the Son of Man. If you don't see Jesus yes. and the authority that the author is striving to compare, yep. then we don't see the point right. of what the author of Hebrews is trying right. to get at. He's driving home the whole... It, it isn't about angels. It's not about angels. He did not subject the world to come to angels. But he has subjected them to Christ. Who fulfills that Psalm 8 man? Jesus is the Psalm 8 man. Jesus is the Genesis 1 man. Jesus is the man. Right? So, now again, tasting death doesn't mean he just took a little tiny sip of it. I mean, tasting death is just euphemistic for he really took it. Right? He took all of death, the whole cup. 
Because you see, we're dead to this world. We are by faith that unites us to the ultimate reality, part of the world to come. This has already begun in the resurrection of Jesus. Isn't it amazing how theology all ties together? The world to come has already begun in the resurrection of Christ. This is the beginning of the new creation in a sense. And we're going to see that we're going to see an earth one day and, and a universe that is properly suited to, once again, to that kind of a being. We need a universe that can actually contain us in a sense. Okay? And, and the resurrection and the resurrected body, like in Jesus and the new the new heaven and the, I mean Jesus, what does he do? He passes through a law, right? He goes we need a universe with laws of physics that can accommodate us. That hasn't happened yet. Spiritually, we're not quite there yet. But the age to come has been inaugurated in Christ's resurrection, right? That's not controversial. Could we decide on that, at least? Good. So, the writer to the Hebrews is saying, we don't go back because there's no way to go back to. Don't go back to the world as it was with your understanding of angelic beings. Christ the Supreme One is here. Christ the ultimate... In other words, Egypt has been destroyed. It no longer exists. There's nothing to go back to. And the irony of glory and honor being the fruit of Jesus' death, when indeed death put an end to the glory and honor that belonged to man to begin with. According to Psalm 8, you crown him with glory and honor. And yet death put an end to that glory and honor of man, didn't it? And here death restores the glory and honor because it is the death of Christ, the ultimate man, who, and why is it so? In a very unexpected way. In a very unexpected way of honor and glory, death took glory and death restored glory and honor. Jesus in his death and resurrection restored the glory and the honor. This was the crowning thing of Jesus. This was, his, this was the thing that undid it all. So lastly, there was an angel guarding the tree of life in the Garden of Eden keeping man out. Right? The, 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 the angel had to keep man out because if man ate the tree of life in his present condition, he'd be eternally in big trouble. Right? And at the garden tomb, there were angels, and Jesus walked right past them, right? Jesus went right by those angels that were there. It was now safe for man to eat from the tree of life. Death was defeated. Man, in Jesus, accomplished what God created him for. He overcame death. Okay? And this is what the Hebrews have got to understand. And with that understanding, they can then begin to appreciate the priesthood of Jesus. And the, uh, because, because now they, they get the kingship of Jesus, I think. And they certainly got the, the, the office of prophet of Jesus, right? If we're, if we're going to talk in those, again, those proper theological terms of prophet, priest, and, and king. So we got the prophet of Jesus. Back when it says he has spoken to us through Jesus, we see his kingship, and then we're also going to see his priesthood and the rest of it. But, the, but the, this has to be established first and foremost. They have to be shaken free. I mean, sometimes you have, to, you have to really dismantle somebody's understanding so that they then have the the intellectual and spiritual capacity to grasp what's coming next. And so they had to be undone with this angelic addiction that they had. And, and, and this took some careful theological, surgical work to do. And what a master this writer of the Hebrews is as he does it. Referring back to the Old Testament, doing all he does, and Ken gets the last thought. Uh, just a quick question. After the Genesis, we had a reading in, in Isaiah. Isaiah 6 1, not, not 8 1. I think I, what did I give you? Was six, I, eight. six eight. I'm sorry. Six, eight. Yeah. The problem was in my notes. I didn't have the first Kings passage begin on a new line. I had the first Kings passage begin on the same line as six eight, so it looked like six eight one. Um, some of you understand what I just said. Todd, pray for us, please. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your only begotten Son. 
who became a little lower even than man, O oh Lord, to do the work that you put him to uh, task for, and that is to suffer and to die and to defeat death for us on the cross. We thank you, O oh Lord. We magnify your holy name, O oh Lord, for this great humiliation and humbling place that our God has willingly, O oh Lord, given himself. And therefore, O oh Lord, we want to exalt him this day, that we, O oh Lord, as those who are in the image of God, O oh Lord, would glorify him as the exact representation of the nature of God. And so, Lord, we worship you and praise you, and uh, may we worship you again in just a few more moments for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen.